Welcome to the Confluence Investment Management Biweekly Geopolitical Report for April 17th, 2023. We can all agree, I think, that access to information has a lot of benefits. It translates to power in the business world and can give us as investors a leg up. The same rule applies on a grander scale in the world of international relations. Confluence market strategist Patrick Farron-Hernandez joins us today to discuss how access to information is a tool the United States is using to influence world events. Patrick, first of all, why is this an important subject for investors? Well, hi, Phil. Thanks for having me on the show. To answer your question, one of the key things that investors care about is the prospect for stable, healthy economic growth across the globe. When the world's economy is growing rapidly and steadily, investors should enjoy better prospects for good returns on their investments. But stable, healthy economic growth is more likely to occur when the world has a functioning hegemon. In other words, one powerful, dominant country that can provide global security security and order, effective instruments of trade and finance and the like. Since World War II, the U.S. has been in that position and U.S. investors have benefited. Now, as domestic politics is pushing the U.S. government to pull back from its global role, and so there's a question of whether the country will lose its position as the global hegemon or how fast it will do so. As we mentioned in the report, stepped-up intelligence sharing is one way the U.S. is trying to maintain its dominant role, at least within the evolving U.S. geopolitical bloc. If it's successful, it may help the bloc's investment environment remain relatively more more stable and attractive than it otherwise would be. Well, is access to information becoming a more important tool for the U.S. as other well-worn strategies in the international relations toolbox lose some of their effectiveness? Well, that's exactly it. The U.S. has traditionally used other, stronger policy tools to maintain its dominance and leadership around the world. Most important, the U.S. has used its dominant military to provide international security and protect international trade routes. And it has used its open economy to pump dollars into the world economy and make the dollar the world's reserve currency. But exercising those tools has imposed a lot of costs on Americans, from lots of war wars to lost manufacturing jobs. So U.S. voters are now pushing back against the use of those tools. Sharing intelligence is one way the U.S. government can incentivize other governments to follow the U.S. lead without having to use those other costly tools. Still, Patrick, it seems that access to information is a relatively minor tool. At least it seems that way compared to the traditional but waning influence of a strong U.S. military and and a strong dollar. Is it? It's not as powerful as providing international security and keeping the U.S. open to foreign trade. That's true. But it may be more important than you think. In today's world, where China... Russia, Iran, and other authoritarian states have unleashed unbridled territorial aggression, the U.S.'s unrivaled intelligence is probably more valued by our allies than it has been in decades. Our friends want information on the threats they face, and when we share that information with them, they become more dependent on us and more likely to bow to U.S. interests. Well, let's discuss, Patrick, how this is playing out around the world. How is the U.S. wielding this tool in the area of public diplomacy? 
Well, this is probably the most innovative way the current administration is using intelligence. In a number of key instances, the U.S. has publicly shared relatively detailed current intelligence on the nefarious acts of the authoritarian states in an effort to generate global opposition to them, even while taking care to protect sensitive U.S. sources and methods. The first big example of this was the U.S. revelation that Russia was preparing to invade Ukraine well before it launched its first attack early last year. A more recent example is the way the U.S. has recently said it has intelligence showing that China is considering providing lethal weaponry to Russia to help it prosecute its invasion of Ukraine. In each case, it appears the revelations have helped build global opposition to the Russian and Chinese moves. How about examples where the U.S. might be winning friends and building influence less publicly by sharing privileged information with select audiences? This is the more traditional approach, and it's been going on for decades. You may remember, Phil, that I spent the early part of my career as an analyst at the CIA. Well, in that role, I traveled to NATO headquarters in Brussels several times a year, in large part to share my office's intelligence on Soviet and Russian defense industry with the rest of the NATO countries, many of which were too small to generate their own intelligence on that topic. I have no doubt that many analysts at CIA today do the same thing. Beyond that, there are also some interesting recent examples of intelligence sharing that's more tied to actual military operations. For For example, recent reports show the U.S. last year provided detailed real-time intelligence to India to help it thwart a Chinese incursion across the two countries' disputed border in the Himalaya Mountains. You can be sure that India was highly appreciative of the information. Do you think, Patrick, if we pay enough attention, we might see evidence of information sharing's influence showing up every day in the news? Yes. From my experience at the CIA, I can assure you that there's always way more going on in international relations than you can know from the outside. But you can see evidence of it. I think one good recent example was how European Commission President von der Leyen this month unleashed an unusually hawkish speech against China just days after she had a summit meeting with President Biden at the White House. From my experience at the CIA, it seems pretty clear that the White House shared some pretty persuasive new intelligence on China's activities with her, which would have encouraged her to make such a speech. Patrick, classified documents detailing American national security secrets were recently published on social media sites, and this certainly has received a lot of attention. Does this breach damage U.S. relations with its allies and lessen the overall effectiveness of this information-sharing tool? Yes, it does. It's pretty damaging on a number of levels. But from the perspective of the intelligence community, it's also part of the cost of doing business. You never want to have such security breaches, and you work hard to prevent them. But all the same, they've happened in the past, and they'll happen in the future. You investigate and see what you can do to stop such breaches in the future, and you work on developing new intelligence sources. At the end of the day, you still keep generating intelligence and using it to help your allies. Patrick, you mentioned that the U.S. intelligence gathering machine is unrivaled. But for countries to fully accept American information, they do have to be convinced that it is accurate and not merely propaganda. Now, do you see this as an emerging problem? 
It is an issue, but experienced national security officials in probably all countries recognize that they may be getting fed somewhat slanted information. One way around that is through the person-to-person contacts between allied intelligence officials, like the conferences I participated in at NATO. Those conferences allow intelligence analysts from the UK or Belgium or Italy or Luxembourg or other countries to ask questions about the U.S. intelligence and probe how accurate it really is. That helps build confidence in it. And then, after the conference, the analysts from half a dozen or more NATO states might go out into Brussels for a beer or dinner together, which further builds trusting relationships. In any case, the U.S. knows that if it goes too far in cherry-picking the information shared, then our allies won't value it as much and it won't be as effective at keeping our alliances strong. I would assume that the information provided is mostly pretty accurate and balanced. Confluence Investment Management sees higher interest rates and inflation becoming entrenched as the world divides into competing political and economic blocks. Would you say effective information sharing by the U.S. may slow this process but not stop it? It won't be able to stop the process of deglobalization, but it will help slow it, and it will help build or keep a consensus for U.S. leadership within the evolving U.S. geopolitical bloc. In other words, it'll help avoid an utter atomization of international relations where it's every country for itself. If the U.S. bloc can remain fairly stable and unified, it would probably keep global supply chains from being utterly shattered. If those supply chains can be preserved or rebuilt to some extent, at least within the U.S. bloc, inflation and interest rates may not get as bad as they otherwise would. Patrick, what advantages, broadly speaking, do stocks have over bonds as investors try to navigate this world? To the extent that global supply chains are disrupted, inflation and interest rates will rise. Both those increases will be bad for bonds. Indeed, we suspect that bonds are about to enter a prolonged bear market with much higher yields than in the past. The advantage with stocks is that companies can adjust their supply chains and operations to try to preserve their margins over time. In other words, corporate profits can rise again in the future and buoy stock values better than bonds. Yet, I imagine there's still a place for fixed income within portfolios. What guidelines should investors follow? Well, two important themes that we focus on are, first, to favor short-duration obligations. After all, they're likely to perform better as interest rates rise, and they allow you to roll over maturing obligations at higher-yielding ones more frequently. In addition, we think corporate credits may, surprisingly, be a better place to be. In large part, that's because the future is likely to be marked not only by higher inflation, but also more volatile inflation and shorter business cycles. If that's the case, then we'll see fewer long business expansions that prompt some companies to take too many financial risks and build up financial vulnerabilities. Over longer time periods, average financial risk may be lower and corporate credit more attractive, as ironic as that may sound. Thank you, Patrick. Our discussion today is based upon sources and data believed to be accurate and reliable. Opinions and forward-looking statements expressed are subject to change without notice. This information does not constitute a solicitation or an offer to buy or sell any security. Our engineer is Dane Stoll. I'm Phil Adler.